Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Today, I wanted to get inside the head of a property manager and find out his perspective on real estate investing. And so during this interview, we kind of bounced around talking about different things. We started off talking about him and this great venture that he has started building a company called Great Jones, which they plan to take nationwide as a property management company with some very unique services that come from the corporate world, actually from Wall Street, because he used to be with Waypoint Homes, which is part of Starwood, and you might know the uh, hotel chain, Starwood, and then he used to be with First Key. So he comes from a background of publicly traded companies and companies that are really backed by tens of millions of dollars. And these companies were literally buying thousands and thousands of properties. In fact, he was part of that whole acquisition, which is still going on today, but he decided to branch off and start creating a nationwide property management company. It's small right now, but this guy has got the smarts and his team have got the smarts to make this a very, very big deal. Anyway, so we're going to get to that in a moment. But you think about property management, I talk about this often, and they're not just uh, your property managers, they're your asset managers. They have to take care of your property, fill vacancies, maintain the property, take care of the tenants who are your customers, and deal with the law and liability. So they need to be understanding of the environment. Speaking of the law and liability, no one anticipates litigation just as no one anticipates a car accident. Both just happen as part of life. And that means that asset protection is very necessary, but it can also be very affordable. Corporate Direct has protected literally thousands of clients over 30 years. And Corporate Direct, I'm proud to say, is one of our new sponsors. Corporate Direct is owned by author and attorney Garrett Sutton, who has written the bestsellers Loopholes of Real Estate and Start Your Own Corporation. And one thing I'll add is that Wyoming LLCs offer excellent asset protection, offer great privacy and great value. Wyoming LLCs are excellent parents for your other asset holding LLCs that you have in other states. And that's exactly how I have my asset protection plan set up. So it's critically important to have asset protection to protect yourself. Visit CorporateDirect.com for more information, or you can call them at 800-600-1760 for a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporation specialist. And if you mention this show, the Passive Real Estate Investing Show, receive $100 off every LLC or corporation you form. Again, visit CorporateDirect.com for more information, or call Corporate Direct at 800-600-1760 and mention this show. It's my pleasure to welcome Dave Diaz to the show. Dave is the co-founder of Great Jones, a venture-backed business on a mission to make property management efficient, effective, and believe it or not, delightful for owners, regardless of their portfolio size. Just some background on Dave here real quick, and he'll expand on this, but he was the director of construction for First Key Homes. And for those of you that don't know First Key, they are a massive company that have purchased untold number of, of homes, which I'll let Dave explain. He oversaw operations across 10 markets. And before that, he was the regional director of another massive company called Waypoint Homes. So he has a lot of industry exposure and experience. So with that, Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. You have a tremendous amount of experience and we've been talking here for 40 minutes before we started this recording. I'm just completely intrigued with all the things you've done and where you've been. So why don't we start with that? Tell us a little bit more about your background and experience so our listeners have an idea of where you're coming from and what you're going to be trying to do here. Sure. The quick version is a full circle loop 
from uh, being a finance MBA and uh, working in institutional multifamily in large apartments, surviving the mortgage crash, and like most people, kind of finding a port in that storm. And I found that in local auction purchasing and bringing some institutional capital to uh, flipping. And so kind of started out on the high-end finance side, ended up on the ground, slugging it out in one-off renovations and ultimately flipping three, 400 properties a year with a local company. Did that for four years. And then when the REITs came in, when the uh, Wall Street guys stepped in to start buying single-family residential, as Warren Buffett famously said, I'd, I'd love to own 250,000 homes. I just don't know how I'd manage them. Well, guys like Blackstone and Starwood and Cerberus, they figure that out. That's what they get paid to do. These big private equity companies that like hard stuff. So they stepped in and started buying single family at 30, 40 cents on the dollar from peak. And I was very fortunate to be very early in one of the first publicly traded companies in that space called Starwood Waypoint. Uh, you would know Starwood from Starwood Hotels, same group behind that. So we did thousands of homes, purchased, renovate, lease, manage. And then went on and ran national construction for another group. But again, I've personally had the blessing of doing it all from leasing houses myself and running around showing people apartments to buying them in bulk and staring at huge spreadsheets and dashboards. I think that's given me a really unique vantage on the industry because I haven't lost touch with unclogging the toilet, but at the same time can tell you what happens when you've got 25,000 houses going on at the same time. So just for some context, Waypoint Homes is still around and they're still buying a lot of properties in markets around the country. First Key is still around too, buying property? So Waypoint Homes merged with Colony American Homes. So it went from 36,000 to 56,000 or some number approximating that and then merged with Invitation Homes. And it's now all under the Invitation Homes umbrella. So Starwood merged with Colony, merged with Blackstone. And that now has something like 83, 86,000 homes nationwide. It's the largest single family homeowner in the country is the Invitation Homes umbrella. Making them the largest landlord in the country. Um, well, yeah, if you don't count apartments, right? So if you look at like an equity residential or something that might own 200,000 apartment units, they're still larger, but theirs are in 500 unit blocks. Whereas these are all onesie houses. I mean, this is truly 86,000 dots on a map. That's crazy. And we were talking about this before. I mean, if you count those tens of thousands of homes, it still represents about a 3% share of the entire single family home market, does it not? That's right. So to date, depending on whose numbers you look at, there's something like 16 million-ish. I hear 13, 16, 18 million non-owner-occupied homes, condos, townhomes in the United States. And when you add up the top 25 large owners, you start getting down to like a thousand homes. If you start to do a pretty low number for a large firm, you end up with less than 3% of the total single family industry owned by those players. So what are you doing with Great Jones? Tell us what that company is and what you're doing and how you even got there. Yeah, sure. So we are a venture backed, so venture capital, um, after serving private equity players for a long time, joined up with some venture capital guys who put in a lot of money to democratize what we call really efficient single family management. These Wall Street folks, when Wall Street stepped into the industry in 2012, it was the first time anybody had the scale and money to make real operational improvements in the way single family homes are operated, right? A mom and pop property manager with 200 houses cannot afford or would not be economic incented to drop seven figures on a new leasing module to take 10 days off their average vacancy, right? Like just the numbers don't make sense. It's not their fault. The, why would you do that when you have a very small pool of properties that that would benefit? But if you have 8 billion with a B billion, your dollars worth of properties under management, and you can move 
your margins just a few basis points, a few hundredths of a percent, the, the output is huge. The gain on spending a million might be 25 million on a few basis points in efficiency. So I mean, carried forward year after year. So it made a lot of sense for these people to bring in amazing process design experts and spend a lot of money on technology. So we wanted, uh, just in short, we wanted to democratize that to give the owner that owns three houses and uh, the guy in Ohio that owns three houses that's got, they're in Naples, Florida. And he now through us can pay the same amount for an air conditioner that Invitation Homes pays. He can, if not better, because we pay faster than they do. We've truly democratized that experience to say, look, we're using real software stuff we build, not this canned stuff that everybody's slave to. And we bring, we democratize that. There's really, other than financing capability, where you're not going to beat Wall Street at their ability to borrow money cheaply, then everything else we can do is if that person owns those properties inside of a Wall Street group, which would never third-party manage. Essentially, what you're saying is you are bringing the scale, efficiencies, and the benefits of having a massive management company that would manage thousands of homes and have the purchasing power. You're bringing all that down to a very small level where smaller investors, what I lovingly call mom and pop real estate investors that may own anywhere from five to 50 homes or more can get those same benefits. Is that basically what you're saying? 100% correct. And then aligning interests. I think most importantly, it's one thing to get a great deal on an air conditioner, but if you mark it back up 20% and take the money for yourself, you haven't really done your customer a favor. So we would look at something like that. Like we don't mark anything up. We pass everything through. Like it's Then it goes further in aligning what has become a very broken industry with all these junk fees and hidden charges to truly benefit the property owner. But we firmly believe that property management is a inefficient and misaligned industry. And just like getting a cab pre-Uber was not an enjoyable experience for very fixable reasons. When is it going to show up? What's it going to cost to get there? Who the heck's going to be driving me around? Are they going to take me for a loop? All that stuff. If you think about it, Uber, it's still a car that comes and gets you and takes you from point A to point B. The difference is you know when it'll show up, you know what it'll cost, you know who's coming to get you. They solve very obvious problems, but through great technology and experience, we're doing essentially the same thing, but for property management, taking away all the guesswork and making it really transparent. And then by fortune of that scale, we're just really well informed. A dentist doesn't have to lecture me on what an air conditioner costs. I'm telling them. So what markets are you in? I know that you guys are working your way to become a nationwide company. So yeah, where are absolutely. you now? Yeah. So we started in Southwest Florida just because that's home court for me. We serve Tampa and Orlando as well. And we hope to expand at least two more markets inside of this year. But over the next couple of years, we should be in the top 25 markets nationwide. And then we build our technology onshore. So we build, we have an office in lower Manhattan, actually in Chinatown, where we build our tech and we handle all of anything pretty or cool that comes out of our company probably comes out of there. Good. Well, we're going to learn more about what you're doing because you're in one of the markets that we are soon to be opening, and that is Southwest Florida. So you might be tied into that pretty darn quick. You yourself. I'm obviously bullish on Southwest Florida. I wouldn't live here. Yeah, absolutely. I've invested there, what, 11 years ago, 12 years ago. I had four houses there and uh, one on a canal. So I love the market. It's beautiful and it's a good hybrid market where you've got cash flow, you've got a decent rate of return, but you also have good appreciation potential. So for investors looking for the best of both worlds, the growth and the cash flow, it's one market that really makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. So you must be a real estate investor. Obviously, you've been in this space for a long, long time. I assume that you invest yourself. Kind of a very high level question. Why is real estate investing important to you? 
Absolutely. So I truly believe that real estate, look, I grew up really poor. I didn't have a dad I could go send around the country club to get me money. I got into management early on because I realized, hey, for every 10 or 15 properties I manage, it's like owning one. And when you're a 26-year-old kid who comes from nothing and you have no capital, that was a way to effectively own houses without having the capital to own them. But I believe that this is one of the few things an individual can do where they can get leverage, right? Like we can margin stocks, but it's not the same as the leveraging effect on real estate. And more importantly, where other people contribute to your basis over time. So if an investor buys a property a year for every 10 years and they put 20% down and the residents paid off on a 15-year AM, at the end of a 25-year cycle, they've got 15 paid-for properties. They've got a choice of amazing annuity cash flow with no debt service. Or they can sell out on capital gains and make a ton of money on the the eventual appreciation that's happened over that time frame. And if you go back to like, I have a life insurance saleswoman that uh, takes care of my family and I love her to death. But if I were to lay out the same net present value calculation of giving somebody, say, $20,000 a year for 10 years, putting in $200,000 and letting that ride for the next 15 and then coming out the back end and saying, look, I'm going to have $2 million in equity and I'm going to have an annuity stream of, say, two to $300,000 a year, they would laugh at me. They would say, that's absurd. You can't do that. There's no way you can put in that little and get that much out. And they're 100% right. Real estate's the place where your resident does that for you, yep. right? Like it wouldn't be possible if there weren't people in every one of those properties paying you every month and paying down that loan. And yep. so that's, I mean, truly why I love it. You can be me, you can come from nothing, and you can make aggregate great wealth and cash flow over time. Wall Street guys were already rich before they picked up the phone and started the business, but seeing people that have built just amazing lives for themselves over the course of a 20, 30 year investment cycle, whether it was their full time job or part time job, is just, man, it reaffirms it every day that this is something, you know, I'm not saying people should do it with 100% of their assets, but if they're not, they should be doing it. It's incredibly powerful. You have the ability to leverage five to one. You have the tax benefits. And if that wasn't enough, you have an asset that beats inflation. At least it keeps up with inflation, not only in terms of price, but your debt is eroded away every single year as inflation continues to chug along. So you're getting paid virtually at from every angle and every dimension when it comes to this asset class. And you can't do Absolutely. that. The other thing I would add is it's inefficient. And I feel like if you're trying to trade cryptocurrency, there's always somebody running algorithms ahead of you. If you're playing the stock market, I know just enough Wall Street guys to firmly believe that that is largely rigged. Sure. Okay. Sure. There's, there's just too many people in the same cocktail party that we're not at that I would never play that game other than the long term. You cannot trade in that and be successful against guys who do it for a living. But you know, true story, I, I recall buying a duplex with a partner where we're standing outside and a guy walks out of the duplex caddy corner to us screaming and cursing up a storm. We just had a really bad move out eviction yelling, I'm going to sell this blankety blank. You know, you know, what do we do? We walk over and we're like, Hey man, you having a bad day? Are you serious? Right. In that conversation, we made $40,000 on the buy. We bought something for 89 K that was worth 129 as it sat. And eventually you held it for a couple of years and sold it for close to 200. And I couldn't do that trying to guess between <laughs> Amazon and Facebook stock. Like I would have no basis and I'm a finance MBA and I couldn't tell you what any of them are going to do. 
right? Yeah. Well, that fragmentation and inefficiency is a huge benefit to an investor who is active and aware and looking for deals or making deals because it allows us to scoop up good deals when they come along or create deals that wouldn't work. Otherwise, you were smart enough to be aware and see that opportunity, make an offer. Someone who was in distress gave it up and away you go. And you can't do that with any other asset class. Yeah. So I love it. It's the hunt, right? I think we're all hunters at the end of the day and finding a deal is just so rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. So let's tie these benefits of real estate back to where we started with the property management side of things, because I always talk about the importance of having your property manager on your team and having a really, really good property manager. I jokingly say you live and die by your property manager. So let's talk about from your perspective, what are the key attributes of a trouble-free, well-performing rental property? Yeah. So first of all, I look at asset quality. I look at location. I do believe there's a floor and it depends on every single market. And I'm sure you'd agree with this where the spreadsheet looks a lot better than the reality. Sure. So as an investor, even if I'm super yield focused, I'm still going to try to find the minimum viable neighborhood or level where I'm not turning the asset every 45 days. I'm able to put people in there that actually have a chance of staying two or three years and making the turnover cost worthwhile that can have a decent credit rating. So I think in that inflection point is where you typically find the highest yield and the most potential in the asset, right? Now, gentrifying or transitioning neighborhoods can be fantastic. Having traveled all over the country, it's been amazing to see people invest well when a city or a municipality makes a really hard go at a neighborhood and there's infrastructure investment and incentives alongside. I've seen that. There's an area between Indianapolis and Carmel, like the central area. Um, and the name of it escapes me where they gave these really inventive tax credits to owners that were willing to hold for so many years. I think they gave them up to 50K towards the improvement of the home and they made it a deed restriction. And so what happens? All these yuppies move in, they start doing these amazing renovations with that money, they hold the house long term. And so areas that nobody wanted to live in five years ago are now new constructions going up. Every other house is a teardown great architecture. Like if you can identify those things, whether it's in your hometown or not, and nail one of those on the way in, what was a $60,000 teardown there now is probably a half million dollar house. In order to be able to do that though, you need to be very active and aware and looking at different neighborhoods and locations to try and catch that trend or know in advance what's coming up. And maybe that's dealing with city council or laws and regulations and zoning changes that are coming up. Isn't it a lot easier to just start off and invest in neighborhoods that make sense? What I would classify as a B, B plus and A minus type neighborhood where you know you've got a good demographic, stability, consistent cash flow because there's jobs for those types of people. Wouldn't that be just the easier way to go? Look, if you're remote, that is by far the most stable thing you can do, right? That neighborhood's not going to swing wildly. Like you said, you've got a high confidence in the future five to 10 year outlook. And if you're still in an infill location, meaning you're not you know, on the furthest edge of a town, you can count on growth and traffic and that sort of thing, only making your location more valuable over time. So the thing I would say is a wise investor, you don't have to buy at the absolute bottom and sell at the absolute top. It's more important that you can kind of reasonably predict the next five or 10 years that something's not going to wildly swing in the wrong direction for you. 
and just go with that and then have a systemic approach to it. But part of that too is finding an asset that's, we call them diamonds in the rough, but I can look at two homes and one's going to be absolute home run and literally the same floor plate two blocks away. The structure of one home has a major flaw that nobody's talking about or the wrong roof line or just the huge oak tree that's busting up the foundation that nobody's talking about. You can literally look at two homes and one of them is a money pit, one of them is not. So getting them from a credible source knowing that they're not leaving like massive latent issues inside of those homes if you're not able to inspect them yourself. And again, just making sure they are manageable location, right? If I wouldn't let my kids live somewhere while they're in college there, I wouldn't buy it. Okay, That's kind of my litmus test is what I feel safe living here myself. If I only had this much money to spend in rent, would I live here? The answer is yes, by all means. Okay. So let's just kind of go back to that same question. You know, I was asking you what the key attributes are. If you were to pick three, what are the top three attributes that you would look for in a rental property that would probably put it in the bucket of well-performing and trouble-free? Sure. So location, right? For sure. The asset quality from a standpoint of construction, latent issues, and large CapEx items. Does the roof have three years left on it? Is the big stuff, does it have a fair amount of useful life? I will do basements. I did a lot of stuff up north, but again, it's another thing where you've just got to be sure that you're not working on a 30-year-old basement that's never been improved because I can bet you with reasonable certainty what's going to happen in the next 10 years if you don't. And then the last thing is having the local partner. If I had to choose between identical homes but felt stronger about the management execution or my team in one area or another, I would always obviously go for more certain execution. When a venture capitalist identifies what they feel like is a good investment, almost always they'll say founders or execution certainty more so than industry or business plan because those things can change. But if you can't execute, you got real problems, right? A bad manager can turn a great asset into an underperformer and a good one can overcome a lot of sins if they have to. Yeah, I agree. This is why I say property management is so critically important to have a good manager can take a mediocre investment. And I'm not suggesting that what we sell is mediocre. We try and focus on good neighborhoods and have good product with no deferred maintenance, no CapEx expenditures, anything like that. But again, to your point, you take a similar type property in a similar location, but two different managers I would take the better manager all day long because I know I'm going to get a better screen tenant. They're going to probably stay longer. They're not going to get upset because if they have a question or concern, it's not going to get addressed right away. It makes such a big difference. I like to look at at tenants as customers. I am providing them a service by giving them safe, clean, and functional housing, and I need to treat them as a customer. And if you do that, guess what? They're going to be happy. They're going to stay longer. They might even refer people to you. So we take that one step further, and I learned this from Waypoint Homes on the part of, we didn't even call them tenants. I mean, legally, you have to in documents, but we always refer our occupants as residents. We forget, it's really easy to forget that these people have holidays and birthdays in the asset we provide by the fact that we keep stoves in storage locations so that when big box stores are closed the night before Thanksgiving, we can still deliver one. Those things mean the world to people. And as a management company being prepared to execute when it really counts, that's the difference in the renewal. That's the difference in getting more rent. Sure. You are providing an experience. This is a very important part of people's lives. I mean, housing insecurity is the scariest thing you can ever face as a child or a parent. And we also view our vendors that way too. I'd even add, I'd expand the ecosystem. I mean, our owner is obviously our primary client and that's whose team we're on. But we believe the best way to serve them is to have amazing relationships with the residents without giving away the farm. 
and to pay our vendors promptly and build really cool teams of people that are all aligned on these things. Because man, if you have that, if you've got vendors that'll live and die for you, if you've got residents that you have pulled nothing short of miracles to service them, when something goes wrong, you've got people willing to jump out of bed at two in the morning and you've got people willing to give you the grace to get through those situations when there's something beyond your control because you've built that relationship. I agree. Yeah, I agree. So we're on this theme of management here. I know you might be a little biased in how you're going to answer this question, but it's a good question. When you talk about the characteristics of a management company or a property manager, what do you look for? What makes a great property manager? Yeah. So I think there's a couple things your listeners should be aware of just as an industry and how things are changing. I don't think this is widely talked about because nobody really cares about property management that much. So the industry itself evolved quite a bit with the advent of cloud computing. Most of the, the industry uses one of five or six platforms. And those could be like your Appfolios, your Buildiums, your Property Wares, Property Boss, those types of things. What's interesting is that over the last several years, those companies in a effort to increase revenue have taken many of the fees that used to be otherwise pass-through fees to property managers. So things like, like I had a really nice BMW in 2007 paid for by my residents paying their rent. I paid something like 50 cents for a property where ACH transaction, and I think we charged four bucks. So I made 350 every time somebody paid their rent, that paid for a really nice car. Now they charge 495 and they get all 495. Like that is now a revenue stream they've completely captured. Same things with for many of them with application fees and other things that they process. So your app folio, you charge $1.50 a unit, but you make five bucks a rent payment and 15 or 20 bucks every time somebody applies online. You can't go to your board and say, I want to give back all these fees because frankly, you're making a lot more money on the ancillary fees than you are the base subscription. Okay. What does that mean to your listeners? It's like jet fuel prices rising all of a sudden and still trying to maintain ticket warfare, right? Like everybody's pricing off the same X percent of rent or however they're pricing their management services, you enter the junk fee, right? So because the easy gimme junk fees that were platform level fees are now taken by the platform, you as a manager, if you aren't really efficient and don't have large scale and all this fun stuff, you're basically forced to subsidize your inefficiency with additional junk fees. So what do we see on that? We see onboarding fees, inspection fees, maintenance markups, call fees, essentially the push for the entire industry. And there's entire companies that exist to help managers accomplish this change, like with rote letters and everything that they send out telling people their fees are going up, that the entire push is that their base level fees are a gimme. And then every time they take action, they actually have to do something, they should get paid more. Right. And again, it's a function of the unit economics they have at their scale, and it's a function of what's happening with the software. But I don't think the average consumer is aware of this. Now, the even more scary thing that we're seeing lately is in order to compete with groups like us that are going out there and saying, hey, look, we're big enough. We don't need the junk fees. We're going to price really fairly and transparently. Some companies have kind of tried to price back, and we're seeing this like, oh, no, 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 we're priced like that. And then you get a copy of their lease. And so just last week, I was going through a lease. A third of the security deposit was a non-refundable admin fee to the manager. Guarantee the owner didn't know that. The 1200 bucks they had in deposit, 400 of it at the time it would be exercised was going to be taken and given to the manager as an admin fee. They were charging the residents for maintenance calls. And some people say, well, I don't really care what you charge my resident. Well, you should. Because if they've got a $50 fee every time the resident picks up the phone to call them, they're not going to call. And that turns a very minor work order issue, like, hey, I've got a pinhole leak in the shower. 
maybe they're moving out in three months. Why would they spend 50 bucks to tell you? You're already taking a bunch of their deposit money anyway, if you read their lease. Next thing you know, you've got a $2,000 shower rebuild and mold remediation because somebody wanted 50 bucks for a phone call that you were unaware of. Right. Right. So what I tell customers is whether you're in our market or not, get a copy of the management agreement. Obviously read page 27, all the mumbo jumbo, like you've got to get, they bury this stuff really deep. You got to get way in the back and the, the paragraphs that make your eyes roll and get a copy of the lease and see what they are charging residents that they're not disclosing because they don't have to tell you in their management agreement anywhere what that lease says. If you read those two documents, you'll have a really good idea of what that interaction is. And more importantly, where the alignment is between you and the manager. They have a 20% maintenance markup. You just got a phone call saying you need an air conditioner, but they're going to make $800 or $1,000 on the phone call. You're sad. They're happy. Yeah, I, we don't yeah. think that's an alignment, right? We think, like, hey, this sucks. We're both spending money. If I do it with no markup, I'm just as upset about having to do it as you are because, frankly, it's just one more thing for me to deal with, and I'm now in a money losing situation administrating. It's really the responsibility of the landlord, the investor, to review that document, to read it, or have their attorney read it. It happens, but it shouldn't come as a surprise after the fact to discover that there was something in there that you didn't know about. I think they're really creative. I mean, I've read no less than 50 or 100 of these contracts, obviously being in the business that we're now, and we see people come over from other companies. And some of them are so cryptically worded. It's like, we have the right to potentially charge fees associated with A, B, and C, and they're not even disclosed what those fees are. Like You have to literally be looking for just vague wording that might allude to a fee. It's not like there's a paragraph with bullets that says you're paying A, B, C, D, E, and F. These things get pretty cryptic. The other thing is, is lock-in provisions. We as a business personally don't believe anybody should be stuck in a contract they don't want to be in. Obviously, leases are different, but right. you know, for the actual service provider, people that you know insist on X period of time or have massive cancellation penalties, that should be a big red flag that these people don't want me to exit when I figure out what's going on. If they, were, if they thought I'd be happy, they wouldn't need my firstborn child as a cancellation penalty. Yeah. Right. So that's another a big red flag for us. But yeah, so just look at it from your side, make sure you look at it from the, the resident side. And I completely agree when we, one of the hardest things for us as we marketed our business has been that if you look at the eight bullet points on everybody's websites, they sound the same. We have a vendor network. My number one competition locally has a vendor network. Their vendor charges $5,000 for the same AC. I pay $2,800. But the bullet on the website says amazing vendor network on both websites. Like, how do you know that as an individual? So, the other thing I would counsel people to do is ask about common repairs that you have a frame of reference for. Like, you know what this has cost you in the past. What does a three ton HVAC cost from your company? If sure. they say something sure. like, I don't know, I'd have to get a bid, I'd hang up. Because if they don't know what an HVAC costs, they shouldn't be in property management. Or if they come back with a number and you know that's different one way or the other, you know whether you're getting a good deal or a bad deal. But if they're basically pricing Angie's list or their answer is, I don't know, we get bids on that. I don't get bids on air conditioners. I know whether it's a vertical or horizontal install, heat pump, heat strip, what tonnage. Like I can tell you on a spreadsheet the exact cost of that item from the manufacturer plus labor sure. installed. If they don't know the answer, they're not a pro. Would you say all of this is a, is a trend or is it the status quo? I think it's a whole industry of status quo. I'm embarrassed to say, and we actually looked at this when we started Great Jones, 
if we could have called ourselves anything other than property managers, we would have. But unfortunately, that's what people search, right? And that's the service they think. But it actually has a negative connotation. It's like saying I'm a transmission mechanic and everybody's used to like, oh boy, that the system guy is going to lie to me about what repair my car really needs, right? right? Um, so the, the industry itself actually has a very negative connotation. Buildium does a very interesting survey every year. And the number of people who respond in the negative about how they feel about their provider is frighteningly high. It'd be the equivalent of saying 48% of respondents don't really like the pizza they order, but they need pizza. So they just keep ordering. It. You know, you'd have to think, hey, there's a better way to make pizza. I'm going to that right so that's why we're here and you know there's some other firms trying to change the industry for the better as well we're in a very small group but we are this is happening and i don't think the existing status quo can hold up because we are bringing these things to light and unfortunately for the mom and pop property manager they don't have the money to spend on the tech they don't have the team quality they don't have the reference knowledge to really improve it'd be like that same cab company saying i'm going to take on uber head to head like how would they really Right, right. They can't get them to download an app for a company that serves like two zip codes. No. They can't. Like they're just not equipped. You know, there's, as we would say, there's a large moat around the business if you have the money and the knowledge because our competition really can't do what we do. I had an owner come over the other day and actually call out their prior manager on some costs. And, you know, the guy, I'll give it to the prior manager who's incredibly honest. He's like, hey, man, I just can't afford to run my business like that. Like, I don't know how they're doing it, but my owner's like, well, that's why you're going to lose. Like, yeah. you're making money yeah. at half of your charge. I don't know what to tell you, but I'd be looking for another gig, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you for sure. last forever the way you're doing it, man. So let me ask you a couple of questions about your perspective as a property manager on real estate investing. So this is kind of shifting a little bit away from what we were talking about, but I think it'll just kind of fill in the rest of the picture here as we wrap things up. As a property manager and as an investor, what do you think is the single most important thing that you've learned through your experience in real estate investing? And I know you've had a lot of experience across the board with big companies and small Absolutely. So besides obviously making money on the buy, like I'm not trying to give you two answers for one. If I had to give one, it would be spread risk where you can. I think the single biggest downfall for us as smaller investors that might only own a few properties is that in the absence of a network like yourself, we might not feel comfortable in buying in multiple markets. So I see a lot of people with high degrees of concentration. I own three condos in the same building. Man, you are one assessment away from having a really bad year. Right. <laughs> why not buy one here, one in Indy, and one in Memphis, right? Like, why not diversify the asset type a little bit, single family, a townhouse? If I have money to buy three houses, I personally will go get a partner or two and we'll buy six. We'll form a little LLC. We'll buy six in the same bucket just so that we're not one move out from a bad cash flow month or one bad resident from having a pretty poor year sure. on, that, on that outcome. So to the extent we can, um, I, you want to individually own. I'm not saying go invest in REITs. Like that's, trust me, you don't need 38 money managers between you and your asset, but just wherever you can, however you can spread your risk, it will always come out better. I agree. We refer to that as geographic diversification. And my very quick and dirty rule of thumb is to have three to five properties in three to five different markets. I don't think you ever need more than five markets, but three, it would be a minimum. And you can have 10 or 20 properties in that market, but create a footprint of three to five properties in one market, move to another geographically different market, build a footprint there, and then work on the third market. And that forms a great foundation for a portfolio. 
I completely agree. And it's just something I would advise everybody to do as soon as they can. Great. What about you personally in terms of your investment properties? What do you look for? Do you have a criteria that you work off of or do you have a set range of things you look for? Yeah, it's funny. I personally, because I'm in the business, I only buy where I manage, but that's because I am a car dealer. So therefore I only buy cars. (laughs) I mean, that's just me. Like it's not, I wouldn't be afraid to do it if I was somebody else, but I like things inside of my control. I feel like I'll know something bad is coming before anybody else because I'm on the ground. If it wasn't what I did for a living, I would diversify as we, we just talked about. But so I have a very bad case. And my wife yells at me all the time about this, that I have deal goggles. I just am stuck in 2012, 2011 pricing. Things often look very expensive to me. And so what I have learned as I have become more patient as the market's recovered is I still want to buy a good deal. I try to buy something just below market if I can or find a way where I can add value. One of the things that we can do as individuals to stay ahead of uh, the large Wall Street investors is that typically they have a buy box that's very set. Like they'll only buy 1990 and newer properties in many locations. Some are even 2000 plus in vintage. And then most of them have a CapEx threshold, uh, an initial renovation threshold, because they don't want the lag on their portfolio of a six-month renovation. If somebody has the capacity, I like to buy really fuzzy deals if I can. Stuff that everybody else thought was really hairy, but I know if I can deal with it or I have a good partner to deal with it, then I'm going to come out with a bit of initial equity in that deal. There's some places all over the country where new construction actually has arbitrage today, where if you're building with a great builder locally, you can actually end up in an asset for less than what they're selling for retail. And you kind of are buying a really high quality asset in that case. But you've got a little bit of downside protection. You're already up 5 or 10%. You may not exercise it now, but at least you've got a little bit of hedge to the market. So that's a big one for me. That's one of the reasons why we're looking at Southwest Florida right now. We will likely have new construction homes coming online, possibly with you, possibly with another builder we're talking to, maybe both. But it's like I said before, it's an interesting market. There's cash flow and there's a good growth potential. And if you can come in with a cost basis below what the fair market value is, you know, you've got that cushion on the property. So absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. And there's other markets in the country that it makes kind of sense for too. If I was buying new construction in most locations, I would look for product that obviously multifamily is one thing, duplexes, quads, that sort of thing. But if you're going single family, just make sure you know whether it's like the other thing I always just ask myself is what is the end game of this property? Is this a tried and true rental? Like it's in that BB plus area, it's priced at a point where it's either a super entry level home buyer would pick it up if I sold it, or more than likely it's going to be another rental investor. I hear so many people, they buy properties. And when I ask them, like, great, what's the goal? They have their crickets are chirping. Like they're like, well, I want to make money. Like, okay, but what are you really doing with this? Is this five years and then I sell it to an end user? Is it five years and then I sell it to another investor? Is it I'm going to own this so the day I hand it over to my kids for cash flow? I would improve that property completely differently depending on the answers. Right? Like there's I don't ever like to spend money twice. I see way too many people going into a lipstick and then they come out and they find out, hey, this property is a resale end user property, and they're ripping up cheap floors and putting in expensive floors to try to resell, like literally spending the exact same right. money twice in the deal. Whereas if you know it at the outset, hey, I may rent it for five years, but someday this is going to an end user, maybe I tile this one. Instead of going in with LVT or vinyl or something like I would do it completely differently if I knew what my end game was. Maybe I put in the really nice kitchen now because even if I have to swap the appliances, 
chances are you're not going to destroy my cabinets in granite, right? Like depending on the home. So I would do that today and get the rent bump for the whole ownership period. And then, yeah. So we refer to that as an exit strategy. And for most people, it's buy and hold and hold for the long term, which means can mean virtually forever, unless you do a tax deferred exchange to leverage up. But even then, you know, you have an exit strategy. Are you selling it retail? Or are you selling it to another investor? But what you're talking about, I think applies more to an active real estate investor, not a passive person, because as a passive real estate investor, you're acquiring a performing asset. What the work that's done is already done. You can't make the choice between tile floors or carpet. That's not even an option. But the point is well taken. Obviously, you have to have the exit strategy in mind. It might be a five to seven year hold. And then you cash out of that market, take that equity and leverage up into a larger portfolio and you do that tax free. And I think that's what a lot of investors do that are in appreciating markets. Sure. And then just really quick, the other thing I see people do that they make a bunch of mistakes on is we were helping, we don't broker, but I was helping a friend try to sell a 26 unit portfolio the other day that uh, we've taken on in management, but we weren't previously managing. Anyway, we got this thing up through a bulk sale website and we realized in underwriting that in fairness to the previous manager, they never had a conversation. Like we talk to our customers once a year and say, hey, what's the game plan? What's happening next year to the best of your knowledge? This guy had the equivalent of $500,000 in lost value due to the loss to lease in his rents, meaning under market rents present in that portfolio. Wow. So normally, I think we would both agree that you're in almost all cases, you're best off keeping a resident in, not suffering turn cost and vacancy and all that. So maybe you're not pushing to 100% of market if it's between that and a term. Right. And I'll be the first manager to say, yeah, I don't move somebody out over 50 bucks in rent. That's just a poor choice. Right. right? <laughs> but if it's sale year, that's a completely different conversation. Yes. Right. Like that, the two, 300 bucks that unit might be under market at the end of the day, have you repeated that process for years? As obviously this guy's prior manager had, he had units at 800 bucks. It should have been 11. Well, capped at a six, you're talking about a 25, $30,000 discount on that unit for what could have been a $3,000 make ready and a replacement. Sure. So in that case, we repositioned and said, no, this year it is market or bust, right? Like, and that's totally fair. So just do your manager a favor for all the property managers out there. Cause I know we beat them up a lot on this call. I do find that no matter how great a relationship you have with your customers, it seems like sometimes they're the last to know. Yeah. Like I think people fear like, Oh, if I say I might sell, they'll stop working as hard or whatever it is. Like, First of all, if that's the relationship, find somebody else. Like then you're not comfortable and you've got a, an issue of distrust there. That should be your first warning. But keep them in the loop because your decisions do change based or you're going for refinancing. You don't have to be selling it. Hey, I might want to pull a new loan on this. Yeah. Okay, let's get it to the best rent we can. Right? Like that's going to affect your loan proceeds in theory. I agree. So things like that, just keep them in the loop and it's a long cycle. You might have just renewed three months ago. Like you've got to have these conversations, like a 12 month outlook on decision making, not a next month outlook. Yeah, I agree. Dave, we're going a little long. So why don't we uh, just kind of wrap it up with one last question here? It's kind of a two part question. We have two kinds of investors that we work with. We have those that are just getting started and they haven't purchased the first property, or maybe they have one or two under their belt, but they're still relatively new. And then we also have investors who have 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 properties. You know, they have a large portfolio of single families, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes. They have 
built up a nice portfolio and they, they don't need to keep investing. But if I were to ask you what advice or direction you'd give that newbie or smaller investor, what would that be? And then I'm going to ask you the same question regarding someone who's a little bit more advanced, sophisticated, and has that larger portfolio. Absolutely. So I think it's never too early. If this is a path you're setting out on and you know this is going to be something you're going to repeat over a number of years, I would standardize early and often. And as you said, in many cases, your investors are buying previously improved properties. So they may not have 100% of the choices left to them as you would a gutted auction house or something. And that's okay. But when I buy something, I still want to know, you know, what are my paint colors? What kind of floors down here? Anything that I can do to spare further repair is once you buy something, taxes and insurance and management fees are basically fixed, right? So now the only variable in that performance is occupancy and what you spend on turnover and maintenance. Assuming you're taking decent care of the resident, your whole operational job essentially becomes keeping costs at a minimum. And to do that, it's much easier if you know exactly what paints on walls, right? You'd be surprised how many colors of white there are. But if you were to go pull up a Sherwin-Williams color deck, you would realize that somebody saying, oh, yeah, we use flat white paint on all walls means nothing, right? You can really easily end up in full repaints. So one of the things we did very early, I think I was on like my fifth house and I was using my initial flip spec and I turned around and I saw a tile with ivory grout and near white carpeting, which is what we used in our flips, like a real sure. beige carpet. And I turned around and I said, you know what? This is never going to work. <laughs> like this is not a rental. Very quickly after that, we had glue down dark brown LVT floors that just this bomb proof plastic stuff you glue on. And, sure. And I put that in 3000 properties. And if somebody gored it with a butcher knife, I could go in and rip three pieces out with a heat gun and slap them back down. My flooring replacement cost went from the whole house to six bucks. That's a huge difference, right? Whether you own one house or a bunch of houses. So making things repeatable. Now, I also see firms standardize stuff that's dumb. Like you have to have Whirlpool appliances in every house. Probably not because you're not carrying an appliance truck in your work van anyway. So there's times where like I think some of the Wall Street groups, I felt like we got a little crazy about standardization. But the high turn number stuff, paint and flooring, just knowing what it is or making sure there's a record of that going into a purchase or that you're buying it from a guy locally who's operating and he, of course, knows what all that is. That's going to to be a huge reduction versus I have no idea what's on my walls or on my floor where I'd ever get it again. And now I'm starting over on the next turnover if somebody does bad things to this property. Yeah, that's the Southwest Airlines model where you have a limited number of of items and choices and you just stock the same amount of the same things, but in larger volume and you get discounted pricing and it just makes sense economically for everybody. And I think that's what you guys are doing. Are you not? That makes it super easy. I have three floors. I have a tile, I have a LVT, and I have a carpet. Okay. If one of those three things has to come out of a property, we put back, I don't care what was there, we put back our thing and then we know what that thing is, right? So it can never have to go back in again for a full replacement. Obviously, if an owner know what's on the wall, but you would be shocked. And again, to PMs out there everywhere, I have mom and pop owners that are sitting there staring at paint wheels saying, you know, we really like a baby blue. And it's like, oh boy, no, no, no. We're vanilla ice cream here. Like we're 70% of ice cream sales have a vanilla base. Like we're going with vanilla. You can have the gray color or the beige color, but those are your two colors. We're not going to go paint this thing some nutty color and try to remember what color it is three years from now when somebody moves out. That's just not in your best interest. You don't live there. It's not for you. You want to make sure it's something you can touch up later for a couple hundred dollars versus repainting. 
So yeah, I mean, Waypoint painted 36,000 homes, the same color inside. So I think that's great advice. I think that really applies more to the management company, not so much the investor or landlord, because they typically don't have the option to suggest or make changes to the materials being used. So Correct. But you could look for it on the way in. Like I have a sneaking suspicion that the same people that are supplying this product in markets know exactly what's there. Like one of the things we tell our owners to do is if it's a newly renovated house, we just ask for it at closing. Yeah. And what paint did you use? I can save it in my system. And then I know exactly. It's not just, oh, it's this color. What base? What level? Like Bear has four different levels of paint if you don't go down into the kills line, right? So like literally saying, oh, it's Bear Semi in uh, Sand Dollar means nothing. That means absolutely nothing to me if I don't know that it's Bear Premium versus Ultra Premium. But if you try to paint with a different base substrate, even if you have the exact color and finish, it will still flash. It will still look like junk. Like this is the stuff where I nerd out. But... I can't tell you how many times I've been in houses where people have tried and all for something that like you had this information at one point in time, just failed to capture it. And now it's costing you a thousand bucks or something that it didn't have to cost you in three years. Just get the info. Yeah. It's a brand new build. That's awesome. My builds don't use the same color because our builder uses a different shade of a, a color, but we know what it is. Like my, oh, hey, I don't care what you use. I just need to know exactly what it is. If right. I see that duplex coming down the road, I know how to touch it up now. Yeah. Yeah. It's great advice. I mean, it might sound like it's a little overhead, some people's heads or it's like immaterial, but at the end of the day, it's the capital expenditures and the maintenance and repairs that kind of eat away at your annual cash flow. So being able to control those costs and standardizing the components and the materials will save you money every time you have a turn on your property, whether it's annually or every three years. And that, that adds to your bottom line. So it's, it's actually an important tip. It's good advice. Yeah. I appreciate it. Cool. Dave, so anything, um, any last comments, tips, anything you want to share with our audience before we close it up here? Uh, You know, just be wary of what you're signing with anybody. I am not impressed with our industry in its current stand and its alignment. That is not to say there are not some amazing, wonderfully motivated property managers throughout the country. Yep. So absolutely, of course, there are. I just think you have to be really careful. You know, it's no different than a sales agent or anything else. Your team. And I have been so blessed in this in my career. Your team will determine your outcome, especially if you're remote. But I have to say this, even as a local guy investing locally, my agent, my title companies, my vendors are the reason for my success, getting me in and out of deals smoothly, making my life easy. And of course, you're providing a lot of that. But Mm -hmm. one of the fast track ways to get a great team when you're not local, or this isn't what you do for a living, is hire one of them. Whether that's you or that's me or that's somebody like me in another place or you in another place is you can get my whole vendor network by hiring us. And that should be what really the first party, whoever you align with going into a place, that would actually be almost my most important thing is when I hire this person, are they filling in the rest of my blanks? Yes. And if they are, you're off to the races. I agree. I put a lot of importance on team, having the right people around you that are competent and smarter than you, because that's how you're going to make your life easy and you're going to be far more successful with less brain damage. So team is critically important. Absolutely. And they know each other. When you find the right one of one thing, what is amazing to me, I really questioned when I first started national construction, I'd done an amazing job in West Florida, but I've been doing it for years. I knew everybody or I felt like I did. Somebody asked me, you know, you're going to be able to get the same AC price in Indy. You know what's funny? At 30 phone calls later, I did. And when I found the AC guy, 
Now I had 29 people tell me I was a lunatic that we make money in Indiana. You know, like I had every possible outcome of that call. You know, you're getting hung up on when I sure. told them what I paid all the stuff. But once I hit one, my next question was, mm, do you have an electrician? And that guy immediately is like, yep, I know who you want. Do you have a plumber? Yep. I know that guy too. Cause once you hit the vein, it's like mining gold. You, when you hit the first one, you find the investor's title agent. He knows the investment agents. He knows the sure. right property manager. Sure. If you can find the one, you will find the rest of them through. Yes, I agree. Right on. Dave, I want to thank you for your time here today. Tell our listeners how they can find you and or your company, Great Jones. What's the web address and whatever else you want to provide? Absolutely. We are out to change property management for the better of the owner. And you can find more on us at greatjones.co. That is not .com, that is .co. So greatjones.co. And uh, there's several places there you can email us. We are not experts in every market, but uh, if it's east of the Mississippi, I probably operated there at some point or know somebody who has. Obviously, they've got you as a resource. But if you email us at hello at greatjones.co, a wonky question like we review management agreements. I drove a hundred homes personally after Hurricane Irma when other PMs wouldn't answer the phone. And we were out, we have jerry cans and four-wheel drive and waterline preppers down here. So we were ready and we we just showed people their houses were still standing. You don't know us, you don't have to trust us, but uh, we mean it when we say we're here to help people. And uh, so if there's anything we can ever do for somebody, you just got a question, want to look at a contract term, want to ask something, fire it in. Let's see what we can do. You'd be shocked who we might know. How far out do you guys want to grow? How far out will Great Jones be so people who are in other markets that don't have you there yet and may be interested can ultimately find you? Yeah. So we want to be in the top 20, 25 markets at the end of the next few years. I mean, we believe this is a service that would be amazing for people to have consolidated, right? I'd love nothing more than that geographically diversified owner that we're talking to here to have one management company in five places. Right. Because the reporting is tough. The tax stuff comes in a little bit differently. Like just that's another major pain point. And we're blessed that we have the capital and the the team level expertise to get there. So we opened two markets in the first half of this year, in addition to our first, and we hope to open two more by the end. We hope to double that again next year. So Right we're, we're moving fast and it's just been a, a wild ride, but it's fantastic to see what it's doing for our customers. Right on. Dave, I want to thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure having you on. Marco, great talking to you. Great meeting you. Thank you. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.